Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. So Adam, tell us a bit about yourself. What's your story? Hey, Raul. Um... A little bit about myself, uh, well, depends on how far you want to go back, but in a nutshell, I'm a physiotherapist, have been for about 20 years, uh, but before I was a physiotherapist, I did my first degree in sports science, which gave me accreditation as obviously as a sports scientist, so I learned about exercise physiology, and I went into the world of strength and conditioning coach in and personal training before I was a physio. And even before that, I had a couple of years of experience when I left school in the military. So I've done done a few things throughout life, but really my role now, I say for the last 20 years, has been a physiotherapist. I'm based uh, just outside of London in a place called Hertfordshire, um, where I work in both private practice and in our national health service. So I've now sort of specialised into focusing my time and attention on the management of the upper limb. So I tend to see a lot of upper limb pains and problems as well but I still see all the other usual stuff back pain knee pain hip pain etc so that's me in a nutshell so what got you into physiotherapy so when I was in the military I was uh, planning on staying in the military for the rest of my life but because of life changes I had to unexpectedly leave the military uh, through no fault of my own I hasten to add <laughs> Uh, but then obviously I came out, you know, now having to have a massive career change and I was always into health and fitness. So I, I initially wanted to be in the training side of things. So that's why I went and did my degree in sports science to learn a bit more about exercise physiology. And, and as I started to work as a sports scientist, a strength and conditioning coach, uh, I was coming across clients and athletes that are having injuries and having pains, didn't know how to proceed didn't know what to do, obviously being ignorant of that area. And that's what led me to uh, seek further education in injuries and pain and went into physiotherapy. Nice. So you mentioned that you kind of specialize in upper limb pain. Is that a passion that you always had or did you just fall into it? Yeah, complete accident. So again, just as life tends to do, you know, you sort of work in various different settings and places as a physiotherapist and One of the places I worked and landed in was well known for the assessment and management of upper limb conditions, had a couple of very well-respected international orthopedic specialist surgeons in shoulder operations, and they wanted a dedicated contact to pass their clients and patients down with their complex upper limb conditions. So they wanted a one point of contact in this hospital to work with. And so they approached me and said, would I mind specializing in the upper limb and I initially said no because <laughs> it was not really a, a major desire of mine I was more interested in lower limb stuff but they convinced me and uh, I'm glad they did in a way because as I say it's uh, it's an area that I really do enjoy working with I find it quite rewarding and rich in working with uh, upper limb conditions yeah so that that's nice I, I like to work with shoulders as well so if you had to treat only one painful body part and i know we treat the human in front of us uh yada yada but what would it be probably shoulder yeah i think that's where i i, I do most of my reading now for the last sort of 10 or so years i would say that i've got 
a set of skills now that gives me, I think, a little bit of an advantage over most other healthcare professionals when it comes to the assessment and management of the upper limb. So yeah, I, I am more comfortable and confident in upper limb conditions, but you know, I still like to see other things. It's like anything, you know, you got to still have that exposure to dealing with lots of other problematic areas just to keep your hand in, so to speak. So tell us a bit about about your low back pain with radiculopathy case uh, due to quote unquote deadlifts. Yeah, so interesting case about uh, where are we now nine weeks ago, um, where I was coming to the end of a sixteen week four month training block that I was working through because we'd been in lockdown previously, so we'd been unable to access gyms for four months prior to that. Uh, so I was using this next four months to build myself back up to baseline after having four months away from gyms. So I was still able to do a bit of home training, but nowhere near my usual loads with squats and deadlifts that I was used to doing for years and years. So building myself back up to my previous levels of my normal 3RM um, deadlift is around 180 kilos. Uh, so I had programmed my, myself to build myself up to that. And I was in week 16 of this. I was just about to take a, a rest week afterwards. So it was my last session of deadlifts and uh, doing 180 kg reps on my second uh, repetition. Uh, yeah, something went in my back pretty drastically that dropped me to the floor like a sack of shit. And I was... <laughs> screaming out loud rolling around on the floor you know all the usual things cold sweats swearing left right and center um masses of pain in my back uh, not so much straight away into my leg it was more just centrally located in my left hand side of my back managed to pull myself together grabbed my camera because i'd filmed it because i was filming my deadlift techniques you know like we all like to do to uh post on the gram and show how impressive we are to everybody <laughs> else you know if you don't post your deadlifts did they actually happen that's what exactly. i asked myself yeah <laughs> uh so i grabbed my camera and managed to uh, stagger out of the gym and uh yeah the the next few weeks were horrendous uh, the pain just gradually got worse and uh started to say refer down into my left leg and it was slightly unusual. It wasn't the classic sciatica referral. It was more down the front, the anterior portion of the thigh. So it was indicating probably a higher level uh, disc injury, herniation, sequestration, whatever it was. I don't know because I didn't go for imaging because I self-assessed and realized I didn't need to. There was no serious or sinister concerns here. And I just sort of been managing it over those sort of eight or so weeks and documenting the process on my Instagram uh, to begin with, fairly regularly on a more or less daily basis. And then obviously, as things were settling down and improving more on a weekly basis. But I'd like to say, well, I'm happy to say now, eight weeks, nine weeks down the line, more or less 100% fully recovered. I'm not quite back up to 180 kilogram deadlifts, but I did 140 uh, last week. And uh, yeah, Almost things are feeling good. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how I, I've been, I've seen the comments, I've seen the videos and the insults and all of that. It's crazy how the the form people, the, the cop police form, think it's only due to form and they don't take into consideration the whole 16 weeks of fatigue accumulation that you had. <laughs> you probably haven't had a 16-week block and they don't know how tough that is, um, yeah, which is, that, which is I, crazy. I, <laughs> Yeah, I, I had lots of interesting conversations around, you know, my injury and what people thought were the causes of it. Uh, and yeah, dealt with a lot of crap and a lot of shit from it as well. But as I'm sure you know, and 
most people that are rational and well read in the research and the evidence, you understand that injuries are multifactorial. They're not just down to one sole isolated factor. And I'm not going to deny that form or technique might not have had a part to play in it, but it wasn't the only reason why my back went on that particular lift. Because when you look at my previous two lifts the weeks before that I was doing, you could probably argue that my so-called form and technique in the videos that I took the week before were even worse than this week's <laughs> video, um, the one that actually caused my injury to happen. So there's got to be other factors around the form and the technique as well that led to the injury this time that obviously didn't lead to it the previous time. Uh, but trying to convince people of that, trying to convince all the internet specialists, the form police, you know, about that, That's uh, that was very challenging and quite frustrating conversations over the weeks that I had, yeah. I also had a lot of fun reading on Twitter some guy <laughs> saying that you should do flexion-based exercise and another saying you should do McKenzie and that you, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's crazy. But Everybody the thought they had, yeah, everybody thinks they've got the superior method understanding for treating these things and again if you're you've been in the game long enough and you've sort of read around things you, you'll actually realize there's very little in the way of superiority around any type of method or technique to help improve things once they've had an injury or pain and you know and again as much as this winds people up i've been saying it you know quite openly and honestly time is probably the best thing and the greatest healer that's got my self yep. back to square one again and people just hate to accept that particularly healthcare professionals because they think it devalues their skills and their their worth and all that sort of nonsense and i'm like it's just crap you know yeah. if you're that insecure to think that then you've got bigger problems <laughs> at oh, hand. yeah yeah i mean if if you're certified in dns guess what you're gonna do dns if you like mckenzie you're gonna like mckenzie but honestly a, a bit of activity modification and let time do its thing it'll probably figure out on its own there's no need to over medicalize or over treat something, but obviously it's good for their pocket. <laughs> Absolutely. Pocket and the ego, mate. That's the other thing. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of people just have this sort of inferiority complex, particularly I find physios, osteos, kinesiologists, chiros, etc. We they, they very much have inferiority complex in the healthcare system. They 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 very much don't value their worth. They, they very much have to try to overcomplicate and overconflate what they are doing and how they are doing things because they just don't value what they they're actually should be doing and what they can do to help people, which is reassure, advise, educate, encourage, facilitate, motivate. You know, they're very much not fixers, healers, you know, all that sort of crap mentality, but they just don't have the confidence to move away from that. You know, they like to put themselves alongside you know, gurus and other professionals out there that have got magic skills and, you know, all these crazy techniques. And it's just like, chill. You don't need uh, to worry about that shit. It's not true. <laughs> A bit of education and reassurance. It's, it's too simple for them. They want to be healers. Mm. Big problem in our profession and, you know, in the therapies across the world is, uh, say, that fixer mentality come and see me and I will fix you. And if you don't come to see me, you're not going to get fixed. You're not going to get better. I'm the one that's got all the the secrets and the magical techniques that will sort you out. Uh, and that's a big, big problem. And uh, the trouble is, is a lot of patients fall for it. A lot of people do get hooked into it and buy into it. And then they get these harms associated with it as well. These misinformation, misbeliefs about what needs to be done and how it needs to be done and 
and they end up getting themselves probably carrying on with their problems longer than they should be. And I think, you know, I always struggle to say this word, iatrogenic harms in healthcare are probably one of the key drivers for problems lasting a long time than they or longer than they should do. So, you know, things like back pain, you know, my episode six to eight weeks before it feels better, but people are going three, six, 12 months, you know, if not years still with problems. And that's normally because it's been, it, natural history has been interrupted and fucked off by the people they're actually going to see who are supposedly supposed to be helping them and they're not they're actually doing probably more harm than good and and a lot of it is unintentional i don't want to start you know labeling people out there as being malicious and malaligned i mean there are a few scumbags out there that do that but most of it is is unintentional in my experience people are just ignorant and unaware of things and they say things you know, lazily, they say things off the top of their head without thinking and, and it fucks people over. I, I sometimes feel that we do more harm than good as a whole big MSK healthcare world, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah I, and, I agree, mate. I agree. And I know there's not a correct answer for this, but I like to ask this to every uh, smart person that comes into the podcast. So why do you think low back pain is the big monster, right? Why is it the most common MSK type of pain? Why is it the world's leading disability factor? Why not neck pain or thoracic pain or knee pain? Why do you think is that? Um, well, you said you only asked that to smart people, so I think we should move on. because <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't class myself as a smart person, mate. Smarter um, than... I, I I don't know. This is the simple question. It's a, it's a good question, um, but you know I think probably the number one factor, if they could probably prioritize them, I just think it's society and cultural beliefs around the back being fragile, easy to harm, hard to fix once you have pain. Any other joint is normally seen to be, you know not as complicated or as problematic as the spine. The spine just has this mystical reputation, uh, rep getting tongue tied now, <laughs> reputation <laughs> as a mystical reputation for being, you know, complicated, lots of structure around it. And obviously, you know, you've got your spinal cord and you've got your nerves that run down it and you've got to protect it because it controls everything else. And, you know, you've got to look after it. You only get one spine in your life and all that sort of nonsense. You can't get a spine replacement, but you can get a knee replacement if you need to, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So I, I think it's just those sort of societal, cultural beliefs around backs that probably drive back pain to be more problematic than it really should be. And and I also think, you know, the other factors is just societal when it comes to activity levels we've got more sedentariness now in our population we're not moving as much as we were doing 10 20 30 50 years ago um, and i also think our resilience and robustness as a as a population as a society is is a lot lot less than it was 10 20 30 50 years ago i mean if you imagine what your granddad or your great granddad did when they had an episode of back pain do you think they rushed and saw a chiropractor and had 12 sessions of manipulations and applied a hot pack and did some Pilates-based exercises before they had to go back out and do their 12-hour manual shift? Of course they fucking didn't. Your granddad and your great-granddad just fucking cracked on. Yeah. Probably had a shot of whiskey, you know, complained and bitched and moaned about it, uh, but then just sucked it up and fucking went on with it. And I think we've lost that as a society. I think we've lost that mentality of, 
of enduring and tolerating hardships and pains and things that hurt. And we're too quick to rush to get the quick fix and the painkillers and the pain alleviators. And I think we're just losing our ability to tolerate things that hurt and feel sore and uncomfortable. Yeah, so you're basically saying that society is too soft right now. <laughs> yeah, in, in a, it's, it's one of the reasons. I'm not yeah. going to say it's the only reason, but yeah, it, it, it's one of the reasons. I think, you know, our generations have had life very easy. You know, we've not had major hardships. I know things are pretty shitty at the moment with the worldwide plague and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, when you look at other generations and the shit they've had to go through with famines and plagues and wars and all those sort of things, you know, our, our society, our population in our current generation hasn't had much of that we've had yeah. technology we've had you know growth and and you know all these other things have, have made our lives very very comfortable and so i think that is a reason why we perhaps see more and more pains and problems because of that yeah i i find it interesting how people let's say they hurt their their knee squatting and they don't catastrophize because it'll probably be fine but then they hurt their back deadlifting and they're like oh my god i threw my back out i need an mri i need to go to a doctor and it's like dude your your back is way stronger than your knee if you just knew that <laughs> you're gonna be fine yeah it's a good point again you know there's that belief i think it's just because you've only got one spine and you've got yeah. two knees you know if one knee's out of action you can hop around and you can replace a knee joint Uh, obviously, if a spine's problematic, a lot of belief that, you know, that's it, you're fucked for the rest of your life. And you mentioned that word catastrophizing. I always find that word now a little bit of a trigger for me. Okay. Because I think, yeah, I, I think we we use that word quite derogatorily, if that's such a word. We use that word uh, in, in a way that I think is sometimes seen as being abnormal. I, I mean, my personal experience recently has just re-emphasized to me that pain makes you think the worst it's natural oh yeah yeah even even when you know shit even when you've got a good idea of what's going on so my recent say episode of back pain i i was thinking the worst you know i immediately disc herniations there's me you know mental images of my nucleus propulsus splattered all <laughs> over my spinal cord you know <laughs> there's me thinking you know fuck me i've got all this material now attached to my nerve roots my nerve roots are fucked i've lost quadricep power you know am i going to get that back am i never going to be able to squat the weights that i was able to do before again and so you know that's technically catastrophizing but yeah it's perfectly normal human nature when you've got pain i think and uh, i think say sometimes us healthcare professionals when we use that term it comes across as a bit derogatory yeah i i feel you um And I know there are papers out there that say that people who catastrophize have a worse prognosis. And I honestly don't know that if as clinicians, we can, quote unquote, fix catastrophizing, which people think they can. Um, I, like you said, it's probably part of nature, human nature. Uh, people get wary when they feel pain. And that means you're human. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be more concerned with somebody who has pain who didn't catastrophize that that would freak me out i'd be like you're a bit psychotic here what's fucking going on why why aren't you worried about this are you normal you got no concerns at all yeah. no okay i'll be like fuck you know all right slowly backing away <laughs> and sometimes probably being a healthcare professional and knowing all of this stuff is probably makes things even worse like when i get a headache i'm like oh man i have a tumor I, I, i'm gonna die 
the curse of knowledge role. I say <laughs> exactly. that, that it's a, exactly. a double-edged sword. Knowing stuff can be a double-edged sword. It can be reassuring in some situations, but then because you are aware of worst case scenarios, you've read those case studies, you know, yeah, it can sometimes, yeah, be the opposite way. It can give you a little bit more concern and worry rather than less. Yeah. Yeah. You start thinking, am I part of that 1% that gets a cancer? Yep. Exactly right. There's me thinking quarter equina symptoms, you know, keep checking the inside of my legs. Have I got numbness around me and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because, yeah, you're aware of these things and it does start to play in your mind a bit. That's funny. Yeah. Um, Talking about back pain, I think also one of the reasons you mentioned the word iatrogenic uh, as a whole, the healthcare industry isn't doing a great job when it comes to back pain. Um, The the first story that comes to mind was I was working at the VA about a month or two ago and the leading Cairo there told a 33 year old man that he should not lift a kettlebell uh, bigger than 15 pounds because his spine <laughs> was a little bit crooked was his words word by word. And then here I am like, Oh man, I got to bite my tongue cause you're the superior here. Like, I, but I want to kill you at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, you hear it a lot. Um, I hear surgeons as well saying it a lot. And again, because of that hierarchical nature of the healthcare system, you know, surgeons are considered to be the all-seeing, all-knowing, you know, gods of everything. And they can't be questioned. And whatever a, a surgeon yeah. says, you know, is gospel. Um, and, and that really fucks me off. It really screws me up because I do see a lot of, say, surgeons, orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons. The one I had recently was a neurosurgeon telling a lady to uh, do the same thing, never, ever lift anything up again. Otherwise, your spine's going to disintegrate. And uh, yeah, and, and there, was, there was no challenge in that because this neurosurgeon had a reputation that was through the roof he charges astronomical fees he's got a waiting list of six months long before you can get to see him so she was you know you know enamored and you know taken aback by how charming he was and how nice he was and how thorough he was and you know she had such a good experience with this dickhead who who had actually now i think scuppered her for life and she come to, she he said go and get a bit of physiotherapy she comes to see me and she was glowing and telling me all about this experience she had with this well-known influential neurosurgeon and uh, this was the advice she's given but he said come and have some physiotherapy to work on my core strength and i'm sitting here pulling my face off going <laughs> thank Great. you very much mr neurosurgeon how am i going to work and change that and uh, the simple answer is i'm probably not not unless I can get her to like me more than a neurosurgeon, but it's exactly. a lot harder for a physiotherapist sitting in tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt Tough job. In, in, in a clinical environment compared to the neurosurgeon with his nice Armani suit and big uh, leather chair and nice plush desk. You know, those, those sort <laughs> of perceptions of, you know, skill and expertise are very hard to challenge based on our, say, hierarchical systems in healthcare. It- I always shit on chiros and PTs and all of that, but they're also very shitty neurosurgeons. I had a 27-year-old male who, quote-unquote, drew his back out deadlifting, and guess what? The neurosurgeon <laughs> did surgery on him. And I'm like, man, like, why did you do this? You're 27 years old. You're going to be fine. And now he has spinal fusion, which is, I don't know why, but it's it's sad. Yeah, it is. And to say, I think, you know, when it comes to these things, it's a lot is done too quick, too soon, rather than having a watchful wait, 
You know, I'm not going to say surgery isn't indicated at all in any time or any situation because it certainly clearly is. But I think with a lot of these things, uh, yeah, surgery is done too soon, too quick, you know, within those first few weeks when symptoms are at that worst. And, uh, you know, it's just a case sometimes of just saying, well, let's just sit back and see how this goes for four to six weeks and see if there's some signs of improvement. And then we know we probably don't have to intervene. And that's even with things like, you know, quarter equina, severe, you know, compressive um, disc herniations. You know, there is research and there is studies out there that shows spontaneous improvement with massive, complete yep. uh, spinal canal obstructions from disc herniations and they don't all need surgical interventions you know but i can understand some of their concerns because you know if you do leave it too long there's also case studies and documents and research out there that shows it has long-term consequences so it's, it's this balancing act and it's this you know juggling act between risks and benefits which in some situations in some cases can be very tricky to uh, to do particularly yeah, that- with neurological symptoms yeah, that's also the beauty of being well read on the literature and the natural history of this certain pathologies, because if somebody comes in with, let's say, a tendinopathy and you tell them that they're going to be fine in two weeks, <laughs> I've got a bridge to tell you, you sell you, you know, and there's people that don't know crap about the natural history of different things. And as clinicians, I believe it should be a role to know at least the, the, the general ones, you know, the ones that we see the most, because if you don't set up good expectations, that's a recipe for failure in rehab. Yep, no, it's a, it's a great point, Raul. I think, again, a lot of unnecessary investigations and treatments are done just purely because of that fact. People are unaware of the natural history and the natural timeframes for things to start to improve. And they, they a lot of people totally underestimate them. And so they start to panic when they don't see progression or improvements within these short time frames, which is un- you know, not really what's going to happen. And so they end up worrying that something's not going right or there's something else going on and start somebody on a downward spiral of further tests, investigations and treatments. When if they just were more aware that things are not probably going to so much change of improvement within the tendinopathy within three, maybe six months. And it's a case of just plugging away through that three to six months before you start to notice improvements. But when three weeks have gone past and they're not improving, then they go, right, now you need to do this and this and this and this. And that's where it starts to sometimes be detrimental rather than beneficial. Yeah. The same thing with back pain. You'll probably get good results in six weeks, but after that recovery will slow down. Um, So don't get scared if it happens because guess what? It'll probably will. It won't be perfect, but that's people like, I would say that the majority of MSK professionals that I know don't know this stuff. Yeah. And and the other thing is, is that a lot of them sometimes misunderstand that when things are naturally improving, it's coincidental timing when they've just started to come and see them and get treatments as well. well so they fallacy, start yeah. to think, they start to believe their own, you know, propaganda. They only start to believe that they are the best thing ever because people come to see them at the peak of their symptoms of their problems. And again, with that natural history curve, once they reach the peak, they go and seek somebody and then things slowly just start to improve. And just coincidentally at that same time, they've gone to see somebody, they've started a course of treatment and therefore, you know, oh, it must be the treatment that's got me better. And I'm like, <laughs> no, it's just the course of time. You just yeah. happened to start your treatment at the time things were getting better anyway. And they're like, no, 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 can't possibly be that. <laughs> it's the fire cupping and the dry needling yeah. and, the, and the resetting of my pelvis that's definitely what's got me better I'm like, you know, all right, okay fair enough yeah definitely i mean you you're four weeks into your 
acute low back pain episode, you go get manipulated and you're good to go and in two weeks. Obviously, it was the manipulation, right? Yep, that's to say the, the hard thing to try and challenge. People just won't accept it because they just don't see it. And again, it's it's hard to, to discuss this and challenge. I'm sure you have it as well, but it's hard to discuss this and challenge this with, uh, with patients and peoples and practitioners as well because they just don't want to hear it. Oh, it's even harder with practitioners by, by far. Yeah. So did you have any, I don't know if you like this uh, uh, word again, but did you have any sort of fear avoidance behavior when you tried to deadlift again after your injury? Absolutely. Fucking How'd yeah. you um, navigate that? Just graded exposure. Just understanding that, I mean, you know, in those acute pain weeks that I was unable to even reach forward without any extra weight. Um, you know, that, that constant guarding and spasm, I felt myself doing it. I felt myself, you know, moving differently because I knew or anticipated that if I moved my normal natural way, I was going to have pain. And I actually started to recognize that I didn't actually have pain as I was doing it because I was moving abnormally and unnaturally. Um, and so once it's a case of just recognizing that and then just trying to grade your exposure through it and just trying to reassure yourself and, and do a movement that you anticipate is going to hurt or do a task that you anticipate is going to be problematic and just do it and, um, normally sort of violate those expectations and actually show to yourself, you know, it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. And that sort of just helps reprogram those natural guarding mechanisms to get less and less and less. So, you know putting my shoes on, putting my socks on in those first few weeks. I was very much braced, tense, guarded, holding my breath. And I was just like, come on, what am I doing that for? Just relax a bit, try it this way, see how it goes. And yeah, just through exposure, you realize actually, yeah, it hurt a bit. It pulled a bit, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. There was no need for all this over excessive guarding protective action. I didn't need to do all that, but yeah, just happens. So it's natural. It's perfectly okay. You just need to recognize it and then try to work around it and with it yeah definitely yeah but trying to help people with fear avoidance behavior can be a challenge especially if they don't know that it's safe to move and to feel some pain it's completely fine um, it's definitely a challenge yeah and again i think you know fear avoidance is a is a factor for a lot of people that are in pain but it, again i think we sometimes see it as a bit as a, a negative, as a derogatory, being fear avoidant of some pains in some situations is perfectly acceptable, good strategy to have, you know? Yeah. And I think in those acute stages of pain, you know, it, it's sensible to have a period of time of, of avoiding it, of, you know, not going into it and provoking it. Sometimes I find the endurance copers can also be just as challenging as the fear avoiders. Mm -hmm. These endurance copers that just constantly keep fucking hammering into pain constantly. You know, even in the acute stages, I'm like, just give it some chance to fucking settle down. Nah, man, fuck this back. Yeah. I just got to carry on deadlifting. And I'm like, fuck me. You've just hurt your back two weeks ago and you're just hammering into it. You're irritating it. You're sensitizing it. How about you just try to let that shit settle down for a week or two more? Do something different. Let's modify your task or activities so you don't get the same pain response that you're doing. And that can be just as challenging as, you know, telling somebody to avoid and stop doing stuff as it is trying to get somebody to do stuff as well. So I find endurance scopers sometimes, particularly in the sports and athletic world, are really challenging to work with. Yeah, I mean, some, some avoidance is completely fine as long as it's not done forever. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and again, you know, endurance coping can be, you know, positive as well. So, you know, in chronic situations, you know, in sit, uh, places and uh, tasks where, you know, a bit of pain is perfectly acceptable, having that endurance coping mentality is also beneficial. But, you know, in those acute, real high irritable stages, that's probably not beneficial. And the same with fear avoidance, you know, high acute episodes of pain, bit of fear avoidance is fine. But in those lower irritable stages, you know, the chronic stages, yeah, being avoidant and scared of movements and tasks and activities is maladaptive and not helpful. So they both have goods and negatives around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole protect versus expose question that you've talked about a million times in your podcast. Oh, mate. It's one of the, me and Greg, we have this discussion, you know, pretty much every time. It's one of the, the age old dilemmas and debates. When do you expose somebody to something and when do you protect them from it? When do you say stop doing something? When do you say start doing something? And the simple answer is there is no simple answer. Yeah. It's a, it's a very gray area and it's dependent on a lot of factors, individual factors, etc. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the dilemmas, I think, that we've always got as therapists when it comes to dealing with pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not black or white. It's definitely a gray area. Yeah. You're dealing with humans. You're not dealing with the textbook. Absolutely, yeah. So what's... I mean, yeah, I, mean I don't want to take a long time, but... And I honestly don't know if I have, if I have anything else. Uh, I was going to ask you, is there, obviously I know the answer for this, but for the listeners out there, is there any relationship between deadlifts and back pain? Um, it depends what you mean by relationship. Define relationship. Uh, let's As say in, causation. Do deadlifts cause back pain? No, not not in isolation. So back, back pain affects... Uh, the vast majority of the population yeah. uh, for, you know, various different reasons. And uh, it's not only due to one sole factor. So pain is a multifactorial phenomenon that emerges due to various different factors working together. So lifting, deadlifting and regular exercise is probably actually more protective against developing back pain than it is actually causing back pain. So again, I always say to people, you know, when it comes to the risks of exercise or the risks of doing things like deadlifts, yes, there are some, but the benefits hugely outweigh the risks. Yeah. You know, you've got more risk of having back pain, I think, from a causation point of view, from being sedentary and not engaging yep. in exercise. Yeah. I agree. Do you ever go into any pain, quote unquote, pain education with their patients. I know that when someone starts learning about quote unquote pain science, they just want to vomit words into their patients. And there are people that with more experience, they're like, ah, I don't want to deal with this pain education. So how do you go about that? Yeah, I've made that mistake many times <laughs> in the past. So yeah, years ago, learning about pain, understanding it a bit more, getting all excited about all this new information I've got. I want to go and tell people about it. So yeah, you start, as you say, word vomiting and pain explaining to everybody you see. And yeah, it, it doesn't normally go well in my experience. Uh, having done those mistakes and those errors in the past, I, uh, I very much learned from them. Um, I think it depends. I, I Again, I think when it comes to advice and education, you, you need to ask the person what they want to know, what they need to know. And so I think, you know, it's it's an important uh, question to ask patients. What is it you want from coming to see me today? How can I help you? What is the information you require? What do you need to know? What are your concerns? What are your fears? What are your beliefs? What do you think is going on? All these sort of questions I find really useful because that helps shape my information, my advice and education. And 
you know, some people do want to know all the intricacies and the neurosciences around, you know, why they've had pain and what's causing it. And, and other people couldn't give a flying fuck and they don't care at all what's causing it. They just want to know, is it safe and am I okay to carry on doing that? Um, so, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, reflecting the questions back to the person about, you know, what is it you want from me? What information do you want from me? And I'll try and give you that as best as I can at the best of my ability, which sometimes isn't always easy to do because sometimes you get questions that come back and you're like, I haven't got a black or white answer here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why have I got pain? What's causing it? And I'm like, you know, I've done my thorough assessment. I've done all the, you know, due diligence. It's, it can be a tricky conversation to have to people. And again, I've made some horrendous errors over the years in trying to deal with this situation uh, as best as I possibly can. And, and again, when you try to explain uncertainty to people, it can come across as you being ignorant. It can come across yeah. as you not knowing what's going on. And uh, so you lose trust and faith in, in patients. So again, I've done that many times before. And from that, again, I've learned that the best way to explain uncertainty is be confident in your uncertainty. And one of the ways I love to do that is by ruling out everything that it potentially could be that it isn't and telling people what it isn't. Yeah. I find that, you know, because you've got some certainty there. It isn't this, it isn't this, and it isn't this. However, the little bit more trickier problem is is saying exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that exclusion of the serious and sinister shit, I find really useful in trying to help explain uncertainty to people about pain. Exclude what it isn't, and then you've got this better position then to start explaining uncertainty and when you do explain it explain it confidently as well be certain in your uncertainty which i know is a bit of a contradiction but i think you know if you're coming across as i say as a bit timid a bit uncertain in your uncertainty it's not tolerated by people very well by patients very well they're not going to believe you so if you're a bit more confident and certain in your uncertainty it's better tolerated definitely and i think that telling people what they're low back pain is not it's probably telling them that oh that's non-specific pain because as soon as you say that's non-specific low back pain they're going to be like what do you mean do you even know what you're doing do you even know yeah. what i have they they start thinking about <laughs> did i make a good choice coming to this clinician yeah it's an unfortunate term that is non-specific pain um it, it's it's well used in the literature and it's well used clinically but you know it's one of those terms that very much can invalidate a person's perception of their current situation and uh, it is a it, i've been struggling to think what else could we call it you know because i do think you know when i i try not to use that term when i'm explaining uncertainty to people your pain is non-specific i don't like that at all because it very much just gives that impression that you don't give a fuck about that person's problems or pain when that's not what we're saying when they're saying it's it's not related or we can't pin it to a specific structure or source uh, and that's normally a, some of the words I use, but I try not to say it's non-specific. Have you found a, a substitute for non-specific? No, really? I've, I've struggled. I, I, I thought of saying non-serious pain rather than non-specific, but then I thought non-serious again can come across as a bit invalidating as well. So every time I've tried to think of a, a substitute for non-specific back pain, um, I'm like, no, you know what? I don't like that either. <laughs> I mean, normal back pain is another one I've tried. So you've just got normal, normal back pain. And then I'm thinking, well, what's not normal back pain? <laughs> is yeah. that, yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know whether I'm just overthinking it too much. That's the other problem with words. I think sometimes we are so 
mindful and careful about what we say. We can end up sometimes putting ourselves in corners and getting ourselves tongue tied and actually making a worse fucking job of it rather than just using the original word that we wanted exactly and nowhere is going to be perfect there's always going to be someone that says oh but that's not right right, or this or that so yeah yeah i think it's more about the person's understanding of the word rather than the word itself yeah exactly yeah the why behind it yeah yeah so adam honestly i have no further questions for you i appreciate you coming in thank you for your time i know you're a busy guy i i enjoyed this chat no problems thanks for the uh the invite is thoroughly enjoyed it. Shame your partner couldn't join join us. Probably still asleep in bed, was he? Probably. I'll go and insult him now. Yeah, go and give him some shit because I'm going to go and give him some shit as well. And can I <laughs> just say, I was I was hoping that to get both of you on because I think you two have got some of the best names in podcasting for healthcare professionals. Oh, so, so you, when I when you sent you me your email. It. Yeah, your names were like awesome. I was like, who are these guys? They sound like Marvel superhero characters. <laughs> Raul Axtmeyer and Axtmeyer, uh, what's yeah. it? Yeah, Brandon I was like, Parker. Fuck. Yeah, I was like, fuck, these guys are Marvel superheroes, or, <laughs> or either that or dodgy porn stars, one or the other. But <laughs> some great names, guys. Some uh, great funny. names. Yeah, weird last name. <clears throat> no, good names. They're strong, mate. I love them. They're good. <laughs>